Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. The easiest way to connect with us from right where you are is by downloading our free Real Life Community app from your app store. You can also find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. This morning, we are going to do the second to last message in our James series. And I got to be honest with you guys, it's a message for this week that I've wrestled quite a bit with. We are mainly going to be in James chapter 5, the first six verses or so. Uh, But I I wrestled with it this week. I rearranged, I wrote several pages and lots of pages that I ended up deleting this morning. uh, And and, and like, uh, I actually rewrote several uh, pieces of it just this morning. So it may be a little uh, jumbled in my mind because it's just one of those things that's just been a wrestling match. And so here's what I want to invite you to do with me this morning. Uh, This word wrestling has just been in my mind several times. Of course, there's a long biblical history of, you know, Jacob wrestling with the Lord and things. And so, so wrestling with God over something that he's working with you on is a good and holy thing, right? You have this, uh, you have this issue that you're working on or the spirit's trying to stretch you on. It's good to go and just do some wrestling with God on those issues and let God lead you Let God lead us to where we are. So I want to invite you. I've been wrestling this week. Will you join the wrestling match with me, basically? We're we're, we're going to talk about a theme that James uh, is pretty intent on. It comes up several times over uh, the course of his little short letter, just uh, these few chapters here. It's the theme of rich and poor. Rich and poor. Now, James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, especially, and then scattered around uh, the area of, of all these, uh, these Christians that have been scattered all over. And by and large, these Christians are the poor. They are the outcast. They are the ones who are trying to figure out how to make life on the fringes of society, carrying a message about Jesus that is uh, not readily received by the powers that be in the world, okay? And so the the power structures, the rich of the world, the elite, the rulers, um, will tend to stiff arm this kind of message. And so James is writing to these Christians who by and large are the poor and the outcast of the world. And so a few times in throughout the course of his letter, he's going to mention uh, these themes of rich and poor. In chapter one, for example, he talks about uh, in verses nine through 11, he talks about how the poor should take pride in their poverty. Take pride in your poverty. You can imagine him writing to these early Christians who are poor and, and wrestling with their daily bread. And he says, take pride in that because you have a reward 
that's coming to you. And then he says that the rich should take pride in being humiliated. <laughs> okay, so James doesn't pull a lot of punches. Rich, take pride in your humiliation. So like, in my mind, it's like when a rich person comes in and becomes a Christian and then shares everything they have with everybody else, that they ought to take pride in that downward kind of mobility because that's the route that Jesus took for us, right? He divested himself. He became a servant. He got down and humbled himself, right? So he got down and then God lifted him up. James is going to pick it up again in chapter two, and he's going to talk about our tendency, listen, to play favorites to people that we feel like can pay us back. And it specifically talks about the, the church's tendency to want to play favorites to people who look like they have the resources. You can imagine a church doing this, right? Somebody walks up to a church that's, that's desperate for, you know, uh, daily bread. How are we going to make ends meet? And they see somebody coming up in the day and they're like, I know that guy runs that business and that business and that business. Let's cater to that dude because he, he probably can help us out. We'll give him a front row seat. We'll make sure the pastor doesn't spit on him when he's preaching, you know, all those kinds of things and, and all, all that. And, and so he says, listen, James says, don't play favorites to the rich, hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to give the kingdom to? And here we've got shades of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven that James is picking up on. And so chapter one, chapter two, he comes back to it again in chapter five. And so if you want to open up your Bibles to chapter five, James chapter five, that's where we're really going to sit down in. Uh, this few verses really is a scathing rebuke of the pursuit of wealth gone off the rails. Okay. Now, uh, I actually called a friend of mine this week as I was wrestling with this message, and I read him this passage. I said, hey, uh, Troy is his name. I said, Troy, listen to this. This is what I'm preaching on this weekend. What do you do with this? And I read to him the first uh, verse, which is, now listen, you, uh, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. And he says, stop, stop. You're not preaching on that. Come on, come on, you're not preaching on that, are you? I mean, really, Eric, choose a different passage. And I went on, and no, he, 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 was, he was joking, though. This, this friend is really cool. He's being sar sarcastic. He's like, you know, as a preacher, this is just a minefield. Nobody wants to have our toes stepped on with how much stuff we accumulate. Nobody wants that. Don't you know that you're supposed to just go up and like make people feel better? And I would love to do that for you this morning. Uh, but James just doesn't play and like doesn't have any bones about stepping on toes. Doesn't have any problem like, like saying, hey, listen, this is something that we got to wrestle with. So let me read to you for us this passage of scripture. James chapter five, verses one through six. Now listen, you rich people, Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You who have hoarded wealth in the last days. See, I told you it doesn't get any better. 
Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one or the righteous one who was not opposing you. So let's just summarize this and say that James doesn't have a soft place reserved in his heart for rich folks who get carried away with living indulgent lives while treading on the poor. No love lost there for James. And while the 22-year-old version of myself would have heard that passage and said, you go, James, you know? Because at 22, it's easy. You know, everything that I owned at 22 years old, one, I was in a lot of debt from graduating from school, and everything then that I owned could not only fit in my 1994 Civic, but it could fit in the back seat of my 1994. So I didn't even have to use the trunk, you know? Like, it probably could fit on one side. of It was like the computer that I had in college and, and some T-shirts that I won in intramural uh, games. And, like, that was it. That was the, the whole, like, net worth of my life was there. Uh, and, and, and so 22-year-old version, here's a, a passage like that. No problem at all cheering James on. You go, James. Get those rich people, you know, like, make them feel as guilty as possible. Uh, and, and, and so that's the 22-year-old version of myself. And here I am at 40. And at 40, I start to squirm a little bit when I hear this. Some of you who have taken that journey and you know what it's like to move into your first apartment, which our first apartment, Ashley and I's, was uh, 400 square feet. And you couldn't open the, the stove without hitting the refrigerator on the other side. Like, you literally could not open it all the way uh, and lay it down. Like, we were just, you know, kind of next to each other the whole time, which is great as a newlywed couple, you know? You're like, that's fantastic. Uh, you don't need more than that. But, but then I remember when we moved to Michigan, and you, you know, just barely have to get this little tiny tiny U-Haul and drive up there. And then we built a house while we were there. And then when we moved here, we had to get the biggest U-Haul that we could get to come down here. And then as the years have gone, you know, when we were 22, we started putting $20 a month or whatever in retirement accounts and, and kind of did that, nick, you know, nickel and dime kind of thing and trickled. And, and so here this thing happens over the course of a life when people are, you know, trying to live faithfully and being responsible and, and you end up like, having stuff. And so 22-year-olds, go James, 40-year-olds, like, is he talking to me? <laughs> you talking to me? Uh, I didn't plan that. Anyway, so uh, just, uh, I don't even know what that's from, but whatever. Uh, is he talking to you? I mean, who is James talking to here? Because when you compare us collectively with the rest of the world, you really have to wonder. Uh, Clayton shared a message with me a few weeks ago from a guy named David Platt, and uh, he went through some statistics on wealth in the world, and you know where this is going, don't you? Uh, he says this, that in our world, one billion people live on less than a dollar a day 
So their annual income is less than $365 a day, uh, a year, right? Uh, Extreme poverty, one billion people. You go up to uh, the next stage and 37% of the world, so two and a half billion more people, uh, live on $825 a year. And if you go up another level, another 38% of the people live on less than $3,000 a year. So uh, you've got 5 billion out of the 8 billion or so people in the world who are living on less than $3,000 a year. Are you with me here? Again, you, you know the, where this is going. If you go up another level and, and you get into the, uh, another 16% or another 9% of the world uh, falls between 3,000 and 10,000 uh, a year. If you go over 10,000, only 16% of the whole world makes over $10,000 a year. So 84% of the people on the face of the earth make less than $10,000 a year. If you make more than $25,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world. If you make more than $25,000 a year, and if you make more than $50,000 a year, this is household income, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. Top 1%. Now that's a catchphrase, right? Because it's the one percenters against the 99 percenters. But worldwide, we are many of us a part of the one percent. David finishes up his, uh, his talk through these statistics and he says he wants to be careful not to be insensitive to those who struggle. And I do too, because I know that there are those of us who are here today and we've got crushing debt and we're struggling to make ends meet in the world. And some of, a lot of us aren't, are struggling to hit that, that 25,000 a year, which in our country is poverty line, you know, like we're, we're, we've got bills and house and mortgages and things like that. And I get that, that in America, it looks different than third world countries, how much you need to survive. I get all of that. But in comparison We collectively are filthy rich as a country. We're filthy rich. In fact, I would say uniquely so in the history of the world. In America, we have to wrestle with the reality that we have piles of wealth that the world has never seen. When you compare ancient Rome to America, we make Rome look like an old farm town, you know? That's how much wealth that we have amassed as a culture. And now we compare this, we compare all of that wealth with this other statistic. 26,000 children every day die from hunger and other preventable diseases we got to wrestle with it. We have to wrestle with it. At the very least, we have to wrestle with what James is saying here. 
We realize this is, this is an issue that we have to wrestle with. And, and we can look at commentaries, and I did this week as I was wrestling through these things, and, and a lot of the people, the commentators that I went, went and read, and really people that I respect and that go all the way back to the church fathers and the history of Christian tradition on this particular passage is that James isn't talking to Christians when he writes these words. You, you hear this, this is kind of interesting. James is writing this whole letter and, and he's writing to Christians about all the things that Christians ought to be doing. But when he's talking about the rich, the, the conventional wisdom and all the scholarly research all the way back to the church fathers is that James isn't writing to Christians. He's writing to non-Christians when he's talking about the rich who handle their riches in these ways. But here's why. It's because James doesn't have a category for speaking to a Christian who has hoarded wealth and cheated out people from their wages and trampled on the poor while continuing to amass all sorts of resources that they don't need. There's no like category in James's mind for that. A lot of the commentaries will say that James is talking to a very specific group of people, the Jewish ruling elite of the day. And I think that they're right. I think that James, when he's penning these words, uh, you who have hoarded wealth in the last days, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who've mowed your fields are crying out against you. The things about like you have condemned and murdered the innocent one or the righteous one who was not opposing you. I think James is, has in mind this view of the Jewish ruling elite class who has spent their life amassing power and wealth and in a way of cozying up to the nation of Rome, this empire of Rome, and getting everything situated just so, so that all of the, the, the common folk in, the, in, in Israel can pay all the taxes and just break their banks and their backs with paying taxes and religious fees and all of these things while the Jewish ruling elite can make sure that all of the religious traditions go on as planned and all the tithes get collected and everything goes just so and everything is maintained so that their power and wealth continues to be consolidated while everyone else suffers and James is saying that is not right and Jesus said the same kinds of things in fact when Jesus came and he started challenging this whole temple system and he came and he started turning over tables and making a cord out of whips and, and driving out money changers and, and really calling out the hypocrisy of these kinds of folks. They got nervous. And they had the innocent one murdered. I think James has this in mind. This is the same thing that they would end up doing with James. James they end up having James murdered, who was not opposing them. I mean, he was writing some nasty words uh, about the, the way that they were living, but, but you know. So I think that there's a part we could go back and look at the commentaries and say, maybe James isn't talking specifically to a Christian person, but again, the reality remains that James just didn't have a category for rich Christians who hoard and cheat and grow wealthy at the expense of others. So this week I found myself wrestling with questions like, how far is too far? How much is too much? Like, when do you know when you have enough? 
what does saving for retirement look like in our culture that's different than that culture? What does it look like? Like how, and I find myself wrestling with those kinds of questions and maybe you have wrestled with those sort of things as well. Is there some sort of line that we cross at some point when we not only have more than we need, but where it goes to judgment of God levels? Is there some sort of line that we cross? It's like, I know that the Bible doesn't teach that money is evil and there are countless examples in the scriptures of where God actually blesses people materially. That's a thing, right? That's a a consistent thing. You read through the Proverbs and several places in the scripture where God blesses people materially, financially, with wealth and resources. And, And I understand that. So money by itself isn't evil, but many of us have heard the phrase from 1 Timothy chapter six that money isn't evil maybe, but the the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But again, Where's the line? Like, where does my amassing of stuff with, without the love of it be, like, when do I cross over into, you know, I am kind of loving this uh, and, and putting my love and desire and pursuit in. Where is that line? So we're wrestling with this. How far is too far? How much is too much? Where is the line where it goes over from just like normal, uh, everyday, daily bread, taking care of my needs, be responsible for the future to, uh, I really, this is my pursuit. Where is that line? And you know, while I was wrestling with these questions this week, I was struck by how pharisaical those kinds of questions were. It's like, it's like this. How close can I get to the line without actually sinning? You know? Isn't this what the Pharisees did on a pretty regular basis? You know, God gave this law, uh, and, and the whole Old Testament law was a, a law that was meant to help the people live within the boundaries of holiness and godliness and goodness and health and prosperity and blessing and all of these kinds of things. And the law was there as a protection around that. But here's what ends up happening. When you have a law, it naturally puts some boundaries. Like on the Sabbath, you shouldn't do any work. Which leads to questions like, well, what's work? You know? And so it leads to things like, is like, like walking work? Well, yeah, that feels like work if you walk, walk too far. So like, how far is too far? Well, I don't know. Like my Apple Watch says that if I take this many steps, uh, no. Uh, my Fitbit says that if I go this far, no. Uh, how, so, so we put a number, right? We put a number and okay, so God must have meant if you take more than this step and it's like, how far can I get to the edge without sinning? And I found myself that a lot of these questions, how much is too much? Where do I cross the line between stuff, just like normal stuff and love of stuff? And I found that that was a similar kind of engagement, those similar kinds of questions that if I'm pressing up, how close can I get? That seems like a pharisaical thing to do. Strikes me as one of the themes that Jesus is speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount. You've got these themes that he he seems to be addressing, how angry can I get before I cross the line to murder, you know? How close to a girl before, or a guy before it becomes adultery? How far can I go in repaying a wrong before I've gone too far? An eye for an eye, two eyes for an eye, a hand for, like, 
How far can I go? And for Jesus, it just wasn't about those kinds of questions. It wasn't about like, there's this lion of sin that's looking to devour us and then God puts the law around this lion to protect us. It's not about like how close can I get without like cuddling with this lion and having him devour me. It's not, it's not that. And the Pharisees of course come in and they say, look, we don't even want you to like get next to the cage. So we're going to put this observation deck around here. And that's what the Pharisees did with a lot of their, their interpretation of the law. They said that we don't even want to get too close to it. So we're going to put the observation deck, but we're going to lean over it as much as possible. You know, Jesus said, If you're concentrating on how close you can get, you're moving in the wrong direction. And so the Sermon on the Mount isn't how angry can I get or how close can I get to a person who's not my spouse or uh, how, how far can I go in repaying a wrong? It's how can I go as far in the other direction as possible? And Jesus, for him, that looks like dealing with the matters of the heart, you know? Before it ever becomes an action kind of thing, let's go all the way in and let God purify our hearts and our minds. And if you're, you're angry with somebody, be reconciled. And if you're lusting with somebody, pluck your eye out. You know, like, don't like, like deal with that. If you, uh, if you find somebody has wronged you, repay uh, blessing instead of with evil, repay it with blessing. If somebody asks you to give you their coat, give them your cloak and your underwear too. You know, like those kinds of things. Go as far as you can in the other direction. Don't be angry with anyone. Don't lust. Don't seek revenge at all. He even has a section on money in the Sermon on the Mount. So in the context of this whole thing where Jesus is rewiring and reordering how we live in God's world, and it's not about how close you can get to the lion before it bites your arm off. It's about how far away and and towards God you can run. He has a section on treasures. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, let's reorder our pursuit rather than how much can I pile up and amass. It's how much can I save up for eternity in the kingdom of heaven. It's a different pursuit. It's a turning around. It's a, it's a whole different uh, direction. So a lot of my early uh, wrestling with this passage was how much uh, before James' words apply to me. You know? Just being honest, like that was my wrestling direction. But I think the more time I spend with this passage that that's actually the wrong kind of wrestling I think a better way to wrestle is to turn all that energy in a different direction altogether. And instead of asking how much, how close, where's the line, when have I crossed into the love of money, instead of taking my energy, thinking about and wrestling with those kinds of questions, that if I would take all that energy and redirect it towards wrestling with these kinds of questions, 
How generous towards others can I get? Just different pursuit. How generous towards others can I get? How simply can I live? What would that look like if I just pursued simplicity? How much can I share? See how this is a different kind of wrestling match and it captivates a different part of our imagination that if we're focusing our hearts and the treasure and the pursuit of our life on how much can I share today? Can I share this week? What would it look like for me to go up to another level of sharing, another level of generosity? How can, what if I I wrestled more with how can I alleviate someone else's suffering? What if I asked the question not about how much can I pile up before James's words apply to me, but instead, what do I need to live on? How can I invest my life more in love towards others? I think I think James writes that section with non-Christians in mind because he assumes that Christians are already wrestling with these kinds of things. Are you with me here? He assumes that when we give our lives to Jesus and Jesus now becomes the Lord and the leader and the master of our lives and we say that his pattern and his way is our model and that's the way that we're gonna live and Jesus divested himself of his life and he gave his life away and he became a servant, that that is naturally then the pattern that baptized Christians are gonna walk in as well. So when we get baptized, we give our lives to Christ, that these are the kinds of questions that we're naturally going to ask? How can I be a servant of someone else? How can I give my life away in love? How can I give my stuff away in love? How can I share with others? How can I look for a need and help alleviate the suffering that comes along with that need? These are the kinds of things that Christians, by our nature and the spirit that resides in us, ought to be wrestling with. Christ is our model, especially when it relates to money and stuff. How can I give myself away, be more generous? This is something that every human being on the face of the planet, you don't even have to be a Christian to say, that's, that's good, right? I mean, maybe you're here today and you're like, uh, yeah, I haven't decided to follow Jesus yet, but yes, if someone can be more generous, can be more selfless in their life, can give away more, can, you know, that kind of thing, yes, we want more of that. We need more of that in the world. This is a universally understood truth. You go to anybody, yes, absolutely. I was listening to a message a few weeks ago by a guy named Andy Stanley, who I quoted a few weeks ago. So uh, anyway, Andy was talking about going to funerals. And, and I, would, uh, I would amen to the things that he says. When you go to a funeral, you recognize that all human life ends up being valued and measured by the same standard. You go to a a funeral and what you find is that in the end, the value, listen, the value of a human life is measured by how much of it was given away in love. Every time. You never go to a funeral and you say, grandma had such a nice car. 
Did you ever see grandma's house? It was beautiful. And the new roof she had put on five years ago, it's going to last another 20 years, you know? Wasn't that wonderful, you know? You never go and you say, boy, uncle had so much money saved up in his bank account. And boy, wasn't his life valuable uh, because of that? Nobody ever, 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 ever talks about that kind of stuff at a funeral unless they're saying, kind of hush us, we're here because we have to, but man, that was the stingiest dude I ever knew, you know. And it's the same thing, though. The value of a human life is always measured in the end by how much of it was given away. Every good word that's ever spoken at a funeral, it it goes like this. She was so generous with her time, with her love, like always there with a gift, always there with a card, always there with a meal. Everybody who wants to tell a great story about somebody who's passed and how had the things that they poured into the world is about the way that they gave their lives and their love to others. Am I right? This is the way it goes. This is always the way it goes. And, and, and this is the way at the end of a life when the advertisers aren't allowed in the funeral home, And there are no commercials on the walls and no billboards talking to us about what we need and what we ought to want. When we come to our senses, we recognize that the reality is easy enough. It's always the same. The value of a life is in how much love, time, resources, and energy was shared generously with others. When the chips fall, we all know this to be true. And so this morning, I would like to invite you to a particular kind of wrestling this week. I'd like to invite you to wrestle with the kinds of questions that I shared with you about how to become more generous, how to give your life away more consistently, to just move away from the pursuit of piling and just not, just not a, just like leave those questions for someone else and try and figure out how generous and giving and selfless that you and I can become as a church, as families, as neighborhoods, as a culture, as a community, as a city as a country, like what would it look like if with all of the things that God has blessed us with, we said, God, none of this belongs to us. We're gonna do everything that we can to put this into the service of your kingdom for your glory. Now, some of us are not used to wrestling with those kinds of things, you know? So I wanna give you some ideas. And in fact, on your way out today, there are gonna be a couple of our teenagers that are gonna hand you these little cards that are pocket size. You can put them in, in your pockets and wrestle with them uh, as you go on throughout the week. But we've got some ideas. Let me give you just a few of them. Here's some ideas. We heard about how many children suffer in the world. You could choose to sponsor one of them. Uh, we've got a website on those cards, uh, CS. Dot ncm.org, Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, $30 a month. You can feed a child and give them school every day of the week um, in some uh, country around the world where children are wrestling. It's a great way, just on a small scale, on a personal scale, to do that. You could uh, do a strict budget 
for September. We're a week away from September. You could sit down and look at your finances, maybe if you're married with your spouse or your kids, and say, this next month we want to live as simply as possibly on purpose. We're not going to save anything. We're going to try and give something. Just one month. We're going to take one month, and we're going to do radically generous stuff with our resources and see what happens. You could choose to begin uh, the practice of giving in the joy box or, or tithes and offerings. You could choose to this week not eat out in your meals or simplify your meals this week. You could choose to not buy anything for a week. Do you think we could do that? Just one week? Just not buy anything. How about this? If you're saying, man, Eric, like literally we have, can't rub two nickels together. What if for you, you chose to try and simplify your closets, your garage, your attic? See, because sometimes the clutter in these places speaks to the clutter of the piling up. And so as a spiritual practice, you could go in and you could say, I don't need that pair of pants. I don't need these shirts. I don't need these shoes. And you could give them to a journey home ministry or greenhouse ministry or goodwill or somewhere where it's going to get into the hands and onto the backs and onto the feet of someone who can use them today. You know? um, so maybe it's a simplifying your stuff. Maybe you could choose to pay down your bank accounts. You look at your bank balance, you say, I don't need all of this. I'm, I'm you know, just... I'm, I'm covered, and you could choose to say, I'm going to write some generous checks to some charities this week. You could do a will and leave a portion of it for when you don't need it anymore to go to charity. You could buy a meal for someone holding a sign this week and not wonder if they really need it or not. You can make a frozen meal for congregational care ministry for when somebody lands in the hospital and they need a meal. You could this week bring a gas card or a grocery gift card to the church and hand it to me and I'll keep it in a drawer for the regular times when folks stop by our church building and say, I need to get to my doctor's appointment or I don't have any food in the, the cupboards for my kids and we help them out with those things. You could do that. You could donate to the church's Compassionate Ministries Fund that pays for things like rent assistance and utilities assistance when people are really struggling. You could, if you want extra credit, sponsor a teen to go to NYC. Uh, you know, just saying. Uh, you can, Sam's like, yes, you could do that. You, listen, we could go on and on with ideas, but the point is, what would it look like for you and me to wrestle with how to be more generous in the path and the pattern of Jesus? Would you pray with me? our gracious and generous God. We know that you are a generous God because you have not withheld your own life from us. That when we were full of sin and separated from you because of it and dying in our own rebellion, you took on flesh put your very life on the cross for us. You gave everything. 
so that we might live. God, our world desperately needs to see reflections of that kind of character played out in this world. They need to see you in us in these ways. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to wrestle well with these kinds of things, that you would help us to be radically generous people, that you would help us to be radically simple people, that you would uh, help us as followers of Jesus to be recognizably on a different journey than the rest of our culture around us. God, there are those of us who've been blessed richly. We pray that you would help us to be richly generous. There are those of us, God, honestly, who are really struggling, and we trust you, God, even today for your daily bread. Pray that you would continue to meet needs and that you'd bring each one of us in that position to a place of being able to share more generously. But God, let this be the pattern of our life. Let this be the passion and the pursuit that we would store up treasures in heaven that our heart and our treasure would belong to you. God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Would you stand?